Today's reading comes from all over the Book of Proverbs. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Yeah, Jesus, we gather、uh, this morning、uh, to sit under your teaching,、uh, not only as、uh, the, the greatest wise sage who has ever lived,、uh, but to sit under your teaching as、uh, as God and as your authoritative voice. Uh, in in our lives, Lord, as our King, Father, so we ask now that you would indeed give us eyes to see, and ears to hear what you want to speak to us. Where there are even now flare ups of pride in our hearts, Lord,、uh, would you give us the grace and the humility by your Spirit、uh, to hear your word,、uh, to leave here changed people? We pray this in Jesus' name, A- Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Jake. If you don't know me, I'm the lead pastor at Christ City East Vancouver.、Uh, also, if you don't know,、uh, we're planting a church in like a few weeks' time. And so, if, if you're a, a praying person,、uh, would really love if you could pray for us.、Uh, we're planting a church in the Hastings Sunrise neighborhood.、Uh, it's it's been great so far to journey with a team.、Uh, if you can pray for us, we we really cover your prayers and appreciate those as we step in and plant and begin gathering、uh, in Hastings Sunrise in the coming weeks. So, just wanted to plug that、uh, in there. This is our last Sunday in Proverbs. Last Sunday in Proverbs,、uh, speaking this week about pride and humility. Pride and humility. There's something very ironic and very strange about preaching a message on humility, right? Like I'm humble enough, right, to preach a message on humility. And so, if we can just get that out of the way, like really early on here, and, and acknowledge the awkwardness of this, that would be fantastic.、Uh, pride and humility are two themes in Proverbs that, while we might not have touched on them yet. And、they're kind of running throughout every single、uh, theme we've we've looked at so far.、Uh, pride and humility touch on every、uh, wisdom conversation. It's kind of like turning on the taps of, of water at your house. Like, like you don't know all the infrastructure that led to that water being there. You just kind of take it for granted.、Right? It's kind of like you know the running water in your bathroom or like the electricity、uh, in your house. You don't know how it got there. At least I don't. I'm not a builder,、uh, but but it's there, and, and you're thankful for it. Pride and humility sort of work the same way in Proverbs. Uh, they're literally in every conversation around wisdom、uh, and around living rightly and righteously、uh, in God's kingdom. We, we, we can't ignore them.、Uh, pride and humility work、uh, in much the same way as I just explained.、Uh, see, I might not know exactly,、uh, you know, or I might rather know exactly what I need to change about the way I speak, but I might not be aware of the proud、uh, heart that gives birth to those words. Uh, it's easy to know, right? When I'm hoarding my money, when I'm being greedy, right? Someone tells me, I look at my bank account,、uh, but I might not know. I might not recognize、uh, the underlying proud selfishness that makes it so difficult at the heart level to be to be generous. 
Like the fear of the Lord, and we've looked at that a number of times so far, uh, pride and humility, uh, these things bleed into every wisdom conversation. And so John Stott, uh, the late pastor and preacher, he said this, at every stage, and I don't think it, this is hyperbole, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. And so really simply, all we're going to do today is get to know our greatest enemy a little bit better and our greatest friend a bit better as well, too. Uh, To look at pride and humility in Proverbs, I want us to do three things. First, see the foolishness of pride. The foolishness of pride. Uh, Second, see the wisdom of humility. And then thirdly and finally, see the way of humility. So first, uh, the foolishness of pride. Now, pride, if we're being honest again, is a word that depending on who's using it, and when we're using it, has different meanings in our culture. Is that not true? It has different meanings at different times in different places in our world. So we should begin uh, by defining pride as we talk about it. Now, it's interesting to note that in the book of Proverbs, at least, uh, this word pride is used by Solomon and the other, uh, other authors, uh, never like in a positive sense. Uh, never like, a, you know, you, he's got some good pride to him, or like, like she, she's proud, and that's a good thing. It's always used negatively. It always has a negative connotation to it. Now, Fred Eaton, he's our Kitsilano uh, lead pastor, and he defined pride the other week uh, really helpfully like this. Pride is spiritual blindness, spiritual blindness brought on by an inflated view of ourselves. Spiritual blindness brought on by an inflated view of ourselves. In our quest, and hasn't that what the summer's been for us so far? In our quest for truly living wisely and righteously in God's created order, according to the grain that God created in the universe, pride stands like a 40-foot high cement wall, 40-foot wide cement wall in the middle of a highway. And it stops us uh, on our journey and on our goal of getting to wisdom and and, and righteousness. It's in the way. See, the proud person cannot, indeed will not, fear the Lord. And if fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as we've seen, that's a problem. Uh, to see this even more clearly, I want us to go back all the way to the first week of our Proverbs series. And I know you remember that week perfectly, and so this will be like overview uh, for all of you. But on, in the first week of our Proverbs series, we, we met a character uh, called the simple or the gullible youth. Look at Proverbs 1, uh, 2 to 4 with me. Let's reacquaint ourselves with the simple youth. Uh, Solomon writes this. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. And then he says, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the, to, to the youth. Verse 4 is who Proverbs is written for. The simple or gullible youth is the target audience of Proverbs. And well, who is the simple or gullible youth? Great question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, the, the simple or gullible youth in Proverbs is the person who is open to everything and committed to nothing. Open to everything and committed to nothing. And what we find in the rest of these Proverbs is really a parental case. Look, look at verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. It's a parental case for, for this, this youth, male or female, to live in the wisdom and righteousness of God. This pleading, this begging. What we find in Proverbs one twenty two, and what we find in our own lives, is that we know that that though we paint a beautiful picture of the wisdom uh, of the wis- of the wise path, rather the righteous path, and not everybody follows that. Look at look at one twenty two with me. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? This word "simple" here is not a positive word. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? 
How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If we continue down in chapter 1, we discover how this proud refusal to, to take the path of wisdom and righteousness plays itself out. Uh, look, look at one twenty-four to 32 with me. Solomon continues. Because I have called, and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand, and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, then he says in verse 26, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me. This is wisdom. They will call upon wisdom, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 30. Would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Verse 32. For the simple, again, not a good word, are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. This conviction, this teaching, that the fruit of the proud will be their own destruction, is a theme that Proverbs picks up on time and time and time again. Look at Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction. Maybe you've heard this before. And a haughty spirit before fall. Proverbs fifteen twenty five. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Now you might be asking, well, what exactly is meant by destruction here? What is meant by destruction? Is this speaking of like eternal return of Jesus, like apocalyptic destruction, or is this just like you know horizontal? Destruction, like destruction in my, my family life, or destruction in my finances, or destruction in my relationships. And the answer, and it's not good news, that Proverbs gives is both. All of it. Pride is a spiritual blindness brought on by an inflated view of ourselves that leads to destruction both horizontally and vertically. Destruction both now and forever. Destruction both physically and spiritually. And if you think that I'm way out to left field right now, you think that guy's crazy up there, uh, let's consider this in a way that might be uh, more readily palatable to us. Uh, pride leading, firstly, to, to horizontal destruction. Uh, it is still now, is it not, almost unanimously accepted that at the heart of most of our problems as individuals and as a society, at the heart of our problems, is a low self-esteem. That's sort of like the popular wisdom uh, to, to wire things wrong in the world, well, well low self-esteem. Uh, that we do not think as highly as we ought to about ourselves. Uh, in 2002, uh, the New York Times published an article called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And in it, I, psychologist Lauren Slater, she writes uh, that low self-esteem isn't at all the problem with our society. Instead, she says this, The fact is, we put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have. And there is no evidence for the old psychodynamic concept that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they don't feel bad enough about themselves. Slater's assessment uh, lines up with what other psychologists have called the depressive realism hypothesis. And the idea here is that people suffering from clinical depression actually, and, and tests have proven this, actually have a much more realistic and useful assessment of themselves and people who are overly optimistic. That's what, that's what the tests find. 
Now, I am not advocating that the answer to our pride this morning is that we all become clinically depressed, to be very clear about that. But I think what we're seeing, and secular psychology is confirming this, is that having an increasingly high opinion of yourself and your abilities, a high self-esteem, if you will, is at best inviting delusion into your life and at worst inviting destruction into your life. And Proverbs confirms this. Look at 13.10 with me. Solomon writes, By insolence, or pride in some versions, by insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Strife, a heartache, difficulty, all come with pride because in Proverbs, this spiritual blindness is what is at the root of stubbornness, arrogance, selfishness, and a desire to make a name for ourselves above anything else. And the incredible irony and and strange thing in our culture is that we're so quick to see pride in other people, but magically, we are never proud ourselves. Isn't that funny how that works? Right? Like, she's stubborn. I just have firm convictions. Right? He's arrogant. But I, I, I'm just confident in the work that I can do. Right? They're selfish. I'm just protecting the asset. I'm just being, being wise. The result is that culturally speaking, we are incredibly inconsistent and incapable at distinguishing and diagnosing pride in ourselves. One person prides something, the other person prides something entirely else. One person sees pride, we don't see it at all. On one hand, we detest it in others, but magically it is never in ourselves. In C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity, he has this chapter, it's a beautiful chapter and a hard chapter, called The Great Sin. And in that chapter, he writes this. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. We are so good. We are experts at deceiving ourselves. We often, often fail to see the foolish pride that runs through almost all of our decisions, all of our actions. Pride is the foundation of our radically individualistic culture. It is behind every single slogan in advertising. It is in the air we breathe. It is in the water we drink. Pride is the reason we don't read our Bibles. Pride is the reason that we don't pray. Pride is the reason that we don't receive and listen to wise counsel. Pride is the reason that we don't give financially. Pride is the reason that we don't love our neighbors. Further, pride wounded is what causes us to retreat from other people, to wallow in self-pity, and to always think that we are the victim. Lewis is right when he continues in that chapter to say that pride has been the chief cause of every misery in every nation and every family since the world began. The chief cause of every misery in every nation, in every family since the world began. Not only does pride create chaos horizontally, it is deadly. It is deadly vertically. What prevents you and I today and you and I tomorrow from coming to the creator God of the universe? What prevents you and I from fearing the Lord? From truly knowing Jesus? From valuing his wisdom above all other wisdom? The answer is is pride. The simple belief that God is not who he says he is, and I am the authority that I believe myself to be. That God is not who he says he is, and I am exactly who I say I am. 
what we need to be reminded of today and what Proverbs reminds us of is that God is not simply unhappy or disappointed with those of us in pride or who are proud, but he actually, the Bible tells us this, he opposes the proud. He works against the proud. Look at Proverbs 8.13 with me. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. In God's wisdom, he hates pride. And this has always been true. He hated pride in the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And so God removed his sanity. He hated pride in Herod, who took the glory for himself. And so we're told, Herod was immediately struck down in his body eaten by worms. He hated pride in Ananias and Sapphira, who thought that they could outsmart God, lie to God. And so they were immediately struck dead. He hated pride in them. And we have to see, he hates pride in us. So where are we proud? Where are we proud? Where are we proud individually as people? And where are we proud corporately as a church? There is nothing that kills the life of a church like pride. You want to kill a church? Fill it with a bunch of proud people like me and like you. This includes proud leadership. This includes pride in the way a church speaks and acts towards its neighbors, including other churches in the city. It includes pride in the conversations and counseling of its members. It includes pride as seen in our unwillingness to open up our homes, open up our hearts, our our lives to people in fear that they might hurt our pride. They might hurt our reputation. All destruction, I don't think this is hyperbole, all death, both horizontally and vertically, in this age and in the age to come, all comes from foolish pride. Which, and if you're with me so far, means we need to figure out how to learn the wisdom of humility. Or we could say the humility that comes with, with wisdom. If John Stott is right, that pride is our greatest enemy, and I think he's also right in saying that humility is our greatest friend. Uh, in Proverbs, we can think of humility as the heart behind uh, this righteous living. So again, you've been paying attention this whole series, and you know everything about Proverbs so far, so this is just a recap for you. Uh, but in Proverbs, righteousness has a particular meaning, right? It's the disadvantaging of ourselves in order to advantage the other. Humility is this necessary posture to live righteously as Proverbs uh, outlines that, as Proverbs paints for us. A scholar and historian, uh, John Dixon, he wrote this little book uh, called Humilitas. And it's not particularly Christian, or like for Christians, kind of like for everybody, and it's great. But he, but he sort of surveys the history of humility and how it's been understood over time. And in that book, uh, Dixon defines humility like this. Humility uh, is the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say, the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service to others. Uh, in his book, Humilitas, uh, Dixon gives an example or illustration of, of humility. He tells the story of how in Detroit in the 1930s, uh, three men got on a bus, and there was a man sitting at the back of the bus, and these three men began to harass and, and, and insult and, and basically just give this guy a hard time at the back of the bus. Uh, finally, the bus rolls to a stop. Uh, the man gets up, and, and immediately they see that this man that they've been making fun of and harassing is a lot bigger uh, than they had anticipated. And, and he walks past these three men who had been harassing him, 
And in like the most bawling move ever in the history of the world, uh, he gives them a business card. And on the business card is just his name. First off, if you have a business card with just your name on it, like you've made it in this world, right? It's just his name. Like, you know what I do. It's, it, this is my name. He gives this man uh, his business card with a name on it. And on that business card, this is written his name. And the name is Joe Lewis. Now, if you're uh, older than me, you probably know who Joe Lewis is. But if you're my age or younger, you have no idea who Joe Lewis is. Joe Lewis is the greatest boxer who ever lived. The greatest boxer who ever lived. Don't give me this Muhammad Ali stuff. Joe Lewis is the greatest boxer who ever lived. And they said that Joe Lewis could knock out a horse with one punch. I don't know how they figured that out. And if you're a PETA person here, uh, don't come at me. I'm just, I'm just relaying the legend. But Joe Lewis, the greatest boxer ever lived. Talk about holding power, withholding power in service to others, right? Like I could destroy you, literally destroy you. And I'm choosing not to. In humility, I, I'm holding back. See, this one basic understanding of humility, I think works if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian this morning. It works for all of us. But Proverbs, Proverbs speaks of a deeper humility, A humility that is born and comes out of what we've seen all along as the fear of the Lord. See, Joe Lewis's humility uh, came out of the fact that he was born in very, very humble uh, beginnings. Uh, Born in an impoverished household, a blue-collar household uh, with with hardworking parents. Uh, He never forgot where he came from. Likewise, as Christians, our source of humility comes from this recognition, this remembering of where we came from of where we were. It comes when there's this honest and gut-wrenching acknowledgement that our hearts are terribly proud and wicked. And that, if not for the intervening grace of God in our lives, in the person and work of Jesus, we would remain in our destructive ways which lead to death. This is why other Christians have defined humility really simply as seeing things the way they truly are. Seeing things the way they they, they truly are. Now, you might not disagree uh, this afternoon or this morning. I don't know where we are anymore. You might not disagree with the teaching that it is God and God alone who, who reached into your life to save you and change you through Jesus. You might not disagree with that teaching or that doctrine, if you will. But when you and I live from a place where our identity and our worth and my worth is wrapped up in something other than what God says about me in his son Jesus we're really saying that there's a part of me and there's a part of you, and maybe it's just a sliver, but there's a part of me that Jesus really didn't need to die for. There's a part of me that Jesus didn't need to redeem. There's a part of me that he didn't need to make new. It was fine as it was. And the humble person acknowledges where they came from, and it's a place of total depravity, a place of total need, of complete dependence, of complete lostness. See, the humble live... In three ways. Three ways I want to show you this morning. As we just saw, the humble seek the good of others. In Philippians 2, 3 to 4, we see this relationship between humility and seeking the good of others very clearly. There the Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. If your attitude is, I've done my part, I, I, I've climbed to this level, so why would I help you? Then you've totally forgotten where you've came from. You, you've totally missed the intervening grace of God in your life and the person and work of Jesus. You, you've forgotten how lost you were. You need to be reminded of that. The humble person in Proverbs is teachable. Solomon writes this in Proverbs 15. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. 
Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. One of my favorite examples in the Bible of a fear of the Lord leading to humility, leading to teachability, is found in the New Testament in the person of the Apostle Peter. Uh, in John 6, there's this interesting scene where Jesus is teaching some, some hard and strange things. Some hard and strange things. So much so, John records this. After this, after Jesus taught these things, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Uh, they could not be taught. Indeed, they refused to be taught. And so they walked away. Jesus sees this. He turns to his own disciples and asks, like, are you also leaving? You also heard this teaching. Are, are you also leaving? And, and how does Peter respond? John six sixty eight to 69, he says this. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And you can see Peter doing the math, can't you? Right? If Jesus, you are the Holy One of God, then how can I not help but learn from you? How can I not help but receive what you say as true? Where else can I go? Like, where else can, can we go? I think it's important here to point out how we often think of teachability. We often think of teachability as being, in our day and age, open to every school of thinking, every possible option, every possible philosophy. In fact, we are taught, are, are we not? We're taught that we can come to conclusions with completely open minds. That just using the objective facts and our neutral starting point, we can come to the truth of the matter. Now, ironically, uh, that teaching is a result of modernist pride, but that's a, a different sermon. Humble Christian teachability in the Bible begins not free-floating, right? Remember the, the gullible, simple youth, uh, open to everything, uh, com committed to nothing, right? Is that not the spirit of our age? Open to everything, committed to nothing, right? Sitting around, listening to things, never landing anywhere, but rather, Christian teachability is anchored and begins and starts in the fear of the Lord with a prior theological commitment. Solomon said that. If we receive every teaching equally, not only will you be extremely confused, and if you're young here this morning, listen. If you receive every teaching equally, not only will you be extremely confused, but you will be about as useful as those men in Athens that Luke describes who would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, n never landing anywhere. Or like the wicked who Paul describes to Timothy as always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. The humble person knows that they are unwise and ignorant. And they know their great need to sit at the feet of the Holy One of God. They do not dismiss or neglect it, but they treasure and they nurture and, and they guard all that the Lord has, has taught them. If you go through Timothy, for example, all the time, Paul's telling Timothy, guard this deposit. Guard the gospel. Keep watch over it. Nurture it. Last thing. Finally, the humble will be exalted. Proverbs 3.34 says this. Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. 
To see how the humble will be exalted, we have to turn now from the wisdom of humility to consider the way of humility. As each of these Proverbs I just read has been telling us, in the Bible there's this reoccurring theme that the way up is down. That the way to the crown is through the cross. That if we want to increase, we're going to have to, to decrease. And Jesus says as much in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 23, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If it is true that God opposes the proud, and if it is true that the wise are humble and the humble are wise, indeed, if it is true that the humble will be exalted, we need to ask now, how do we get there? How do we get there? I think the first thing we have to recognize is that pride is more pervasive than what we typically think. That you're probably and I'm probably more proud than I'd like to admit. That every day, in our successes, in our failures, pride in some way, shape, or form is at play. That that dynamic is at work. And it's not enough just to try to be more humble, right? Why? Because we try to be more humble, and then we we make it like, I'm more humble! And now I'm proud, because I'm bragging about being more humble, right? It's not enough just to try to be more humble, right? Or if we fail in our attempt to be more humble, if we fail, our pride is wounded, and again, we stand condemned. The pride is not just in the obvious things. It's in the secret things, the little things. It's in you, it's in me. Which is why the second thing, the second thing we need to hear, and this is the good news, is that this path to humility, this way to humility, is made possible through the person and work of Jesus. Now, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while right now, you've been to church for a while, uh, you probably anticipated that answer, didn't you? Right? Like, Jesus is always the answer. You're in Sunday school, you're stuck. Jesus, right? You haven't been paying attention, just say Jesus really quick. But I want to press further this morning. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the way to walk in humility is through Jesus? Jesus instructs all who would follow him in Matthew eleven twenty nine to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's how the way of humility is possible. Jesus comes, gentle, lowly in heart, not on a chariot as would be befitting his divinity, not on a war horse as would be befitting his his kingship, but in humility, Jesus takes on flesh, he dies a criminal's death in our place, is resurrected from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of God. And that same Jesus says to you and says to me today, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What does this mean? Now, obviously, there are some things about Jesus' incarnation, his life, death, resurrection that are unique to Jesus. We are not God putting on flesh, dying on the cross for the sins of the world. But in one sense, it means that you and I are to do the same. Everything in our world says, look out for number one. Everything in our hearts says, look out for number one. I was talking to a guy yesterday about his work, and his work, the implicit slogan is, is look out for number one. Get ahead, do whatever it takes, look out for number one. But Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, he shows us a better way. Think about this. Not only does he show us a better way, he empowers us to walk that better way. Paul writes in Colossians 3 that because we have been raised with Christ, because we're now united to Christ, we are able to close ourselves to the very attributes of Christ. 
Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, we're so used to living in a Judeo-Christian world that, that these virtues of humility and meekness are sort of widely accepted. But you have to understand, in the ancient context, humility, meekness, like, that person's a pushover. That person is not getting ahead. These are not celebrated things. Jesus comes and he changes the entire fabric of history. Humility, meekness, put on the very attributes of Christ. The idea here is that in Christ, We are to grow, and if we can say, fill out an identity that is already ours. Indeed, the key, I think, to defeating pride in our life today is seeing who you are in Christ. That's the key. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor, preacher, theologian. He said a while ago something I really like, something to the effect of, of this. Unless you know who you are in Christ, you will never have the strength to admit how much sin is still in your life. Unless you know who you are in Christ, you and I will never have the strength to admit how much sin is still in our lives. Keller continues to say that if our foundation this morning is, I'm a good person. Like you're here with all these religious people, but I'm a good person. I don't need this religious stuff. I'm a good person. I do good things. That's who I am. If that's your foundation and not, I'm in Christ, then you will screen out and you will ignore any data in your life that challenges your foundational identity of being a good person. You, you, you won't listen. And we're really, really good at screening out and filtering that data. Because if that data is true, what foundation remains? Who are we then? But knowing who you are in Christ, knowing who you are, who you are in Jesus, not only frees the Christian to confidently search their hearts, knowing that they're secure in him, Knowing that, as First John tells us, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It also frees the person here this morning who doesn't know Jesus, but is scared to leave what they built their life on behind. See, the message of the gospel is that you can have something so much better in Jesus. People, we, we were meant to boast. That's the strange thing in all of this. We, we, we sung this, didn't we? We were meant to boast. We were meant to brag. We were meant to be proud. But not in the silly things we do. Not in the silly things we get. Not in these, these, these self-salvation products that we, we, we create on our own. We were meant to boast in big, glorious, cosmic realities, like being joined to the triune God of the universe. We're meant to boast. We're meant to brag in him. And when you encounter the God of the universe in the person of Jesus... How can you not be humble? How can you not help but see things the way they truly are? Would you stand with me now as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.